0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Matthew chapter 5, and we will begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord declares, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and Uh, The 19th century Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, once wrote, The true Christian is the only happy man because his conscience is at peace. The mysterious witness for God, which is so mercifully placed within us, is fully satisfied and at rest. It seeks in the blood of Christ a complete cleansing away of all guilt It sees in the priesthood and the meditation of Christ, mediation of Christ, a complete answer to all its fears. It sees that through the sacrifice and death of Christ, God can now be just and the justifier of the ungodly. It no longer bites and stings and makes its professor, you know, afraid of himself. The Lord Jesus has amply met all its requirements Conscience is no longer the enemy of the true Christian, but his friend and advisor. Therefore, he is happy. Happy. I think we all want to be happy, right? I know I do. I know my my kids do. In fact, we uh, spent all day yesterday, if I'm dragging a little bit, it's because we spent all day at Knott's Berry Farm, um, you know, getting one more last summer fun day and before school starts with the kids. Why? Because we want to have fun with the kids, right? We want to make them, you know, we want to help them to make more memories um, to carry it with them. We want to see them smile. We want to hear them laugh, right? We want our kids to be happy. And believe me, our kids want to be happy, right? We all want to be happy. We all want our family members to be happy. I mean, most parents say to their kids as their, ki- parents, their kids grow up and start making their own decisions, they say, I just want you to be happy. Yeah? We all want to be happy. We all want to experience happiness. Am I right? I mean, we all love that feeling you know, in our hearts, you know, that, that satisfaction of happiness when we have that for a moment. We love the happiness that comes from, from certain times in our lives. Now, some of us seem to experience a lot more happiness than others. Some people don't seem to be very happy at all, right? But we all want it. We all desire it. We all pursue it. Even those people who are perpetually happy, and I think we all know a couple of those, right? They're just perpetually unhappy. right? It seems like nothing makes them happy, but they still want to be happy. right? Even those people who always seem to sabotage their own happiness, we know some of those people, too, who, who for some reason get in the, their own way of their own happiness, right? They still want to experience happiness just like the rest of us. We all want it. We all desire it. We all pursue it. Even, even those people you know, who just pretend like happiness isn't even a part of their game. We all want it. But what is it? What does it mean to be happy, Right? What is, where does happiness actually come from? Is it about having enough money? And we might just initially say no, but I mean, think about this. Um, just about everyone at some point thinks that a little more money would make us happy, right? I mean, we reason, we reason this. Like, if I could just pay my, all my bills every month without having to really worry about having enough money, I would really be happy, Right? If I had enough money to buy a new house, a bigger house, you know, or a lake house, or even just my own house, I would be happy. If I had enough money to retire on without actually having to worry about my finances, I would be happy. If I could just get that raise, you know, if I could just win the lottery, right? Yeah, I would be happy. How many of you have ever thought that at least one time? Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. The reality is, is, um, I think that we all understand that if, if that if money was about happiness, then how come there aren't more happy people? We live in the most prosperous country in the entire world, right? If having more money and having enough money was, was, was what made people happy, then how come there's so many well-off people and so many rich people unhappy? And we see it all the time. Wealthy musicians, wealthy stars, athletes, they're so happy they commit suicide. Right? So many rich people who have multiple marriages because, because their marriages couldn't seem to last in spite of all the happiness that money could buy them. Or what about all the spoiled, you know, unhappy rich kids who end up in trouble or on drugs or in jail, even though they have access to all the resources they need to get whatever they want to be happy. So happiness isn't about money. Right? It's not about having enough money. It's not about you know, earning enough money. Well, if it's not about money, then what's it, what is it? Is it about being popular? Is it about being liked? I mean, we all, we all want people to like us, right? In fact, if there's one of, the, one of the, the, the flaws that I carried with me into to my Christian faith was the desire to have everybody like me, you know, because it really bothered me if somebody didn't like me. We all want to be liked, every one of us. Even the grumpiest people around us still want people to think well of them. Even those people who are hardened and they profess openly, well, I don't don't care what anybody thinks about me. Even they still deep down want to be liked too. They, They want for people to accept them. Let's just be honest. We all want to be liked. We all want people to think well of us and not talk bad about us. But on the other hand, right, we know people who are extremely popular and people who who, who who everybody seems to like but suffer from depression and anxiety. People that are loved by everyone else, but they feel worthless and they still feel insecure about who they are. People have lots of friends, but it seems like they always feel like they're alone, even in a crowded room. You know, people being well-liked and popular isn't what, what, what happiness is about. And happiness is not about everybody agreeing with you, Okay. Now, you might disagree with that, but I'm telling you, all right? And, and, and guess what? You disagree with that, it doesn't make me unhappy, okay? So the truth is that everyone agreeing with you in your perspective will not make you happy. In fact, it makes things worse because you live in an echo chamber, right? Now, some of you are non-confrontational and think that would be a nice, you know, we would never have to have conflict with anybody. But the, the truth is even that would not make you happy. Happiness is not about that either. Happiness is not about any of that. It's not about relationships, even though relationships bring momentary happiness at times. right? If you've, if you've been in friendships for, for very long, or if you've been married for very long, or you have close personal relationships, you will find that you will experience happiness in those relationships. Absolutely. But the relationship itself is not the source of the happiness. And neither is sex, even though every other teenager in the world wants to believe that it is. Right? It's, it's, even in our sex-saturated world... Even though it's filled with all these promises that you will be happy, right? You know, if you'll just fulfill your desires, whether it's monogamous or promiscuous or heterosexual or homosexual, it didn't matter. The world promises that ultimately, you know, happiness is found in a person's individual um, sexual expression. Yet, at this point in history, in this time in history when the moral shackles are all thrown off of us, and people are legally free to pursue just about anything they want to under the sun in that area. And with an unlimited supply of, you know, of, of images on the, the internet, they come to find out that, that sex does not bring happiness. People still suffer from depression and anxiety and self-loathing and fear and worry. So why do so many people who were sexually liberated in this time, why do they end up enslaved to the darkness of their own emotions? Well, the truth is, happiness is not found there either. It's not found in material possessions. It's not found in abundance. It's not found in your career. It's not found in your hobbies. It's not found even in technology. We live in a world right now that has more technology right now than at any other point in human history. My 12-year-old son has more computing power in the palm of his hand than the entire United States military did in the 1940s. Right? We have all this technology and all these labor-saving devices, right? But it seems like we have greater frustration. And more to the point, we have more stuff than any point in human history, yet we struggle to be happy. In fact, we even invent new things to complain about. In fact, there's a little clip here that demonstrates what I mean. So I pay $5 for a two-hour movie and then realize that my flight is only 90 minutes long. I mean, come on!
1: i tired. I think I slept too much. Honey, the fridge is full. Babe, my coffee mug is too tall for the curing. What am I supposed to do with my leftover chicken fajitas? I'm hungry, but I'm not, like, hungry-hungry. I'm not hungry-hungry.
0: I'm not hungry-hungry. I'm not hungry-hungry. I don't even know if I'm hungry. It's 11 o'clock, and I don't know whether to eat breakfast or lunch. <laughs> I think I'm hungry. I hate watching Blu-rays on this TV. It looks too real. I'm not hungry. I'm hungry.
1: My phone is 4G, but we don't have 4G coverage where we live, so it's the worst. This is the worst. No!
0: Oh! Oh! I clicked restart instead of shut down. I have to wait for it to start back up again so I can shut it down.
1: I hate it. I'm like too healthy. I never get to use any of my sick days. Closet full of clothes, nothing to wear. My white noise machine broke last night, and I didn't get any sleep.
0: There's nothing to watch. There is nothing to watch.
1: The bottom of my foot has been itching all day, but it tickles when I scratch it.
0: I didn't finish brushing my teeth this morning. My battery died halfway through. I hate that.
1: My hair smells like Starbucks. My hand smells like Starbucks. My iPad smells like Starbucks. That's the worst. Just shoot me Just shoot me Put me out of my misery, kill
0: me now Just shoot me in the face Wasn't I just chewing gum? I don't remember spitting it out This
1: blanket doesn't have any sleeves
0: It's funny because we've all been there, right? In spite of all the abundance we have and all the resources we have, we still find reasons to complain because happiness isn't in the technology. It's not in the stuff that we own. It's not about possessions. It's not about power or popularity. It's not about being married or single. It's not about any of these things. Happiness seems to be about something else altogether. Now, please hear me and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we cannot have momentary happiness with these things and they're not worth pursuing. Okay? Because you can. Right? In fact, I remember in 2005 I won a national salesman of the year award and believe me, when I did, I was very happy. I was very 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 happy for for a few days. But the thing is is it didn't last. In fact, uh, I still have the award with you know with me in my office, but it doesn't bring me happiness. It does I don't I don't look at it my heart is not filled with the happiness that it once was. Or like the time when Kim and I bought a house in Bakersfield. It was our first house, and we were excited. It was huge and and uh, all the kids had their own rooms and I had an office and it had a three-car garage and you know, I had a walk-in closet the size of my current bedroom, you know. And when we got the keys, we were very very happy. I promise you, okay? And uh, and because it, it was a nice place, right? And I was really happy to be able to provide something nice for my family. And so when we bought the house, we were happy. And I experienced many moments of happiness pulling up to the driveway, seeing such a beautiful home. Um, but again, that happiness is was temporary. And with most of the things that we pursue that make us happy, everything that we chase to fill the void uh, in our lives seems to only create this Temporary happiness. No matter how great the happiness is in the moment, it always seems to be a crash on the other side. Um, Everything that we pursue in life can just only be temporary means to happiness. Yet we chase it, though, with a reckless abandon, don't we? We go after it with all of our hearts, the money, the power, the popularity, the security, the influence, even toys. How many toys can we even us adults have to make us happy Every day we wake up looking for the next thing to make us happy. Is it our kids' accomplishments? Is it our spouse's thoughtfulness? Is it a promotion at work? Is it the weather going to be nice tomorrow going to make me happy? Is it my team winning a championship going to make me happy? What is it all the, what will actually keep me happy? And again, I'm not saying that any of these things are bad because they're not bad. Because there are lots of good things in our lives. There are lots of good things that bring us a degree of happiness. The warmth of a true friend, the comforting embrace of your spouse, the smiles of our kids, satisfaction in getting a good grade, the satisfaction of of doing a good job, finding money in your pocket when you didn't expect to, right? Those are all those things that put a smile on your face. Those are good things. And I believe, as James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. I believe that God, in his grace, gives us all a measure of these things in our lives as some degree of happiness be it relationships or marriage or the satisfaction of the work we do. God gives us these little tastes of happiness. But no matter what the source seems to be, happiness, true long-term happiness, the kind of happiness that's not fleeting from us, that kind of happiness seems to be elusive. It seems to be impossible to find. It seems to be that we're destined to be happy only momentarily. And it's like we lived a life like happiness addicts, right? We find something in our lives that makes us momentarily happy. And then when the happiness high wears off, we crash. And then we're off to find the next thing to make us happy again. We have to get that happiness fixed. That's why so many people are so impulsive in their shopping. Because something about shopping makes them happy for a moment. They spend and they buy things that they're, so they're trying to get that experience and that sense of happiness again. Some people justify, well, I'm just buying for other people. But the reality is, it's still the same problem. But the fact is that most things that we pursue in our own lives in this world to give us happiness only give it to us temporarily. And so it seems like this kind of happiness is really elusive to us. But then when we read the Bible, Jesus says, there is a happiness that's not fleeting. A happiness that, that is actually blissful. A happiness that lasts Jesus calls it, um, calls it happiness uh, makarios in Greek. And the word makarios is, the, is from the root word that means to become, to become uh, long or large or to extend. It carries with it this idea of, of something growing bigger within us. Okay? And makarios is translated either as happy or, or fortunate. Um, it even means to be in an enviable position right and it carries with it this deep sense of satisfaction especially as it relates to the things of god makarios is not some temporary happiness it's a life changing happiness it's a happiness that comes not from the world but from god it's not something from the outside making us happy it comes from the inside by the spirit in fact this word makarios is translated 44 out of the 50 times it's used in the bible as the word blessed it's the word blessed. Right? Makadios means blessed, and not just a little bit, like, okay, I'm a little blessed. I mean, makadios means blessed supremely, supremely blessed. It means blessed by God himself. In fact, the Strong's uh, Exhaustive Concordance says that it's extremely blessed, or well-off, or fortunate, and as I said, it means to be in an enviable position. That means if somebody saw you, and how blessed you were that they would be envious of the blessing that you have is the kind of the idea behind the word that we translate as blessed. And so this word doesn't simply give us a sense of a temporary state of being you know, happy, but a permanent one. It's a sense of deep satisfaction, a deep happiness, a sense of peace, a sense of joy that comes only from God himself. And I believe with all my heart, that is the happiness that we're looking for. That's the happiness that we pursue in the other things. That is the happiness we're trying to reach and, and trying to achieve by chasing the things of this world. But as we discover, those, that happiness is not found there. It's not found in money. It's not found in power. It's not found in stuff. It's not found in sex. It's not found in hobbies. It's not found in sports. It's not found in work. It's not found anywhere else in The world. This kind of happiness is found only in the things of heaven. In fact, Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew tells us where to find this happiness, this kind of blessedness. He said, Blessed, I want you to hear this, okay? Blessed, deeply happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed or in an enviable position are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are, are, are the merciful. I miss blessed are the the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, supremely happy. Hear this. Supremely happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In fact, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Now, when you look at that list... It is kind of perplexing, isn't it? Because you're going to notice what Jesus is telling you to pursue for happiness is the very thing that the whole world tells you to avoid, right? I don't know if you noticed that, but if, but, but if you want to write a list of everything that the world says to pursue for happiness, you just write the opposite of that. Okay? And that pretty much tells you what you need to pursue to be happy by the wor- world standard. Right? Blessed are the proud in spirit. Blessed are those who laugh and smile and party all the time. All right? Blessed are the bold and assertive. Blessed are those who are full and satisfied. Blessed are those people who are self-righteous. Blessed right, are those who vanquish their enemies. Blessed are those who have the killer instinct or those who divide and conquer. Blessed are those you know, who, who are not having themselves being persecuted. Blessed are you when everybody likes you. Is really what the world tells us. And to be honest, most for the most part, our instincts are to follow the world's example, the world's formula for happiness. Because the world's formula seems to be in my own best interest, right? Because let's face it, I don't want to mourn. I I, I don't want to be meek and mild. I I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be reviled. I don't want to hunger. Believe me, I don't want to hunger, right? I don't want people talking evil of me, right? And so it seems to me not being persecuted would make me happier. It seems to me that being, that me not being hungry, you know, would be a blessing. It seems to me that being bold and self-promoting would make me happier. At least it helped me get what I want to get so that I would be happy, But Jesus says the exact opposite here. This list that Jesus gives us here stands in stark contrast to what the world says. Jesus says, blessed are those who go through these things, who become these things, who endure these things. And, I mean, blessed, I mean, you have to understand the the, the power of the word that he's using here. Blessed, extremely happy, deeply satisfied, in an enviable position, are those who live out these characteristics that Jesus is describing here. These things seem completely counterintuitive to us. But Jesus, God in the flesh, promises that we will be blessed, happy beyond what we can understand. But how is that possible? How can we be so happy living in a way that seems to be counter to our own interests? Well, that's exactly what this series is going to be about. In this series titled Blessed or hashtag blessed, we'll be asking the question, what does it actually mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be truly happy? What does it mean to live a life that carries with it the supreme state of being blessed that Jesus is talking about here? And more than that, you know, we're going to ask, how is it possible to live in a deep state of happiness being persecuted and meek and mourning and being poor in spirit? We're going to look at why these are the, con- the characteristics of a blessed life, and we're going to look at the outcome right, of this kind of a life. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to look at all of these individual blessed statements that Jesus gives, which, by the way, are called the Beatitudes. We're going, we're going to take them apart, and we're going to dig into the Word of God, and we're going to push past our preconceived ideas, and we're going to, we're going to move beyond our tendency to push back against difficult truths, and we're going to look to see what Jesus is actually saying and what it means to live a truly blessed life, the life that God means for all his people to live, not as the world defines blessed, but as Jesus himself defines it. And so the goal of this series is to help all of us to understand what true biblical happiness or blessedness is all about and how we are to pursue that in the way that we follow where Jesus leads. And so today, this is kind of like the nebulous part of this entire series because we're kind of like having to cover a lot of ground in the introduction. All right, so this is the introduction to our topic, right? Today's message is the set up for the rest of the conversation over the next few weeks, which means, by the way, you're not going to want to miss the next few weeks because there's a lot we're going to cover but this is a really, really big topic, and there's, there's a lot to this. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but there's a lot of, a lot of things in this, these verses, both uh, theologically and also practically speaking. And so in this particular text, it's really easy to get sideways uh, in our understanding. In fact, this section of the Bible is really easy to get wrong. right? Because these verses in Matthew chapter 5 are probably the most misunderstood and some of the most misquoted in the entire New Testament. And the reason for that is because many people want to read chapter 5 here, or at least this particular section, as a standalone section, as if that's all there is to the conversation. Many people approach this text as if it's an isolated conversation that Jesus is having. They read these verses and they try to interpret this text without actually considering the proper context of these verses, which includes their immediate context in this chapter. All right? It also includes their, their cultural context, the, the historical context, and the overall context of the book of Matthew. People read these verses out of context and they end up with a wide variety of interpretations and so today what we're going to do is we're just going to take a little bit of time. We're going to frame this conversation, and we're going to talk about the context of this passage so we can actually interp- interpret the meaning of this text the way that Christ would want us to, the way that honors his intentions. And we begin, then after that, we'll begin to touch on some of these blessed statements that Jesus had talked about as he described the life of, the, of a Christian who would be blessed and so with that, what we need to understand is the book of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so because of that, this book has a distinctive Jewish flavor to it. And what that means is we need to examine what Jesus is saying from a first-century Jewish perspective, which can be difficult because we're not in the first century and we're not Jewish people. Right? Right? But what we need to do is we need to understand where, where, there, where, where this message is going to them we need to understand who he's talking to. We need to understand what, what this text means to them. And what we need to understand is each of one of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written for distinct purposes for for a, a different intended audience. For instance, the book of Luke, um, that Gospel is focused on Christ, the man of history. Luke was a, a Greek uh, uh, a physician, but he was also a historian. And he tells... The story of Jesus, the man, in history. And the reason for that is because because Luke's audience was mostly Gentiles and Greek-speaking, and they were influenced by Greek philosophy. And they believed that man was a measure of all things. And Luke tells his story about Jesus, the perfect man, the man of God. And then John writes with a purpose to focus on Christ's divine nature. By the way, it's my favorite gospel. Um, But that's why John goes so long to prove that Jesus is God in the flesh. John wants to make sure people didn't miss the fact that Jesus was not created, but he is the great I am God himself. And then Mark, he wrote his gospel to focus on the fact that Jesus is the son of God. And he was writing to a more general audience, but he spent a lot of time highlighting Jesus as the one who came to do the father's will, the suffering servant, the one who came to serve God and to serve each one of us. And then Matthew his purpose of the gospel was to present Christ as the Messiah, the long anticipated heroic person who was to come to be the reigning king of the entire world. The Jews were expecting that Jesus would come and vanquish his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. That's who he was talking to, people that were expecting that. And what Matthew does is he tells the story of Jesus and he explains that he is the Messiah who is actually reigning as king and his kingdom has already come, right? It's just not the kind of kingdom that they were expecting or used to. This is not the kingdom of the world. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's a huge, important factor in this, in this letter, all right? The theology of the kingdom of heaven on coming to earth was an important concept to this entire, entire book, And so our text is the first part of of Matthew chapter 5. And this section that we read is called the Beatitudes, as we mentioned. And this section is not some standalone, set of like pithy proverbs that Jesus just kind of like rattled off and like you write down and put on a t-shirt. Okay? This was an introduction. This was the introduction to a much larger conversation called the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous and one of the most important parts of the New Testament. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 29. So it's a big conversation. And in this sermon, Jesus isn't making some general statements about life. He's talking about what life is supposed to be like for the believers in the kingdom of God. And and not just in the future when we die, but here and now. Jesus describes what kingdom life is supposed to be like right now. And he covers everything from being blessed, to divorce, to charitable giving, to anxiety, to judging other people, and even living by the golden rule. All of these things he covers in in the sermon. And this sermon is both heavily theological and intensely practical. And in this sermon, Jesus describes how it is that a believer in God's kingdom should live right now. And this beginning of chapter 5 is the introduction to all of that, and so because of that, we can surmise that Jesus is talking. What he's talking about is is he's actually talking to believers. Now, there are many people who say that well, this text is directed at unbelievers, and the beatitudes are about the way of salvation. But the fact of the matter is, the context here doesn't support that. In fact, William McDonald wrote, "This sermon is not a presentation of the plan of salvation, nor." Uh, is its teachings intended for unsaved people. It was addressed to disciples and intended as a constitution or the system of laws and principles by which uh, to govern the king's subjects during his reign. It was meant for past, present, and future, all those who acknowledge Christ as king. The context of this passage points to the fact that Jesus is telling his followers there in the first century what true happiness really is inside the kingdom of heaven here on earth. He's making clear what being blessed is about. And he makes it clear it's not about money or power or religion or following a bunch of rules. It's not about stuff and it's not about exercising authority over people. Instead, blessedness comes not from an external source, but instead having the right heart attitude before God. In fact, let's take a look at the first two of these. In verses three and four, and see how this fits his context. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, in these two verses here, Jesus lays out two attitudes of the heart, two attitudes of the heart, and then he lays out the resulting and corresponding benefits of that attitude that makes a person blessed. In fact, let's let's take a look at the uh, the first one. Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Now, this is really kind of a perplexing kind of expression, uh, especially when it's translated in English, and many people struggle with this. In fact, some people tend to read this text and they use it as a justification to hate rich people. Seriously, in our culture, especially, you know, this is a justification. They look at that and say, "See, Jesus hated rich people. See, blessed are the poor." All right. They embrace this as as extolling the life of poverty. They believe that this text is about being poor financially. They believe that those who live in material poverty are blessed simply because they're impoverished. That's why some religious people take a vow of poverty, and that's why some Christians view being broke as a badge of honor. But that's not what this text is talking about. Some people use this text as a justification to promote low self-esteem and even self-hatred, right? Because they think that poor in spirit means that you have to like hate yourself or have self-disgust. But understand, these, neither one of these is the point that Jesus is making in the text here. The Greek word here for poor literally means destitute. And it gives a sense of being a helpless beggar, right? It relates to, to, to being more of the pauper than the peasant. In fact, it conveys the idea of, of extreme poverty that's the opposite of being extremely rich. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that pretty clear then that, this is, that Jesus is talking about, about money then? He's talking about being financially poor? No, because Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor in resources. He said, blessed are those, the, the, the poor in spirit. The idea that Jesus is trying to communicate here isn't about money or self-esteem. But rather, Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who is spiritually bankrupt. Blessed is the one who understands that he is spiritually broke. He has nothing to offer. Blessed is that person. What does that mean to be broke and bankrupt? What it means is that you're desperate and you're dependent upon others to provide for your needs. Without someone else's help, if you were totally destitute, you would die. You would perish. You were the exact opposite of being self-sufficient. And that's the idea here. Jesus is saying that the person who is the exact opposite of being self-sufficient, spiritually speaking, is blessed. That's what he's saying. In fact, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They go from extreme poverty to extreme riches by being the opposite of being self-sufficient, spiritually speaking. John MacArthur actually says it this way. He says, this spiritual poverty speaks of deep humility of recognizing one's spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It describes those who are acutely aware of their lostness and their hopelessness apart from divine grace. It's this idea that you recognize that you are holy and completely dependent upon God and His grace. That there's nothing spiritually that you can bring to the table to make God love you. Right? There is no self-sufficiency. There is no self-reliance here, spiritually speaking. There is no, there's no earning anything, and especially there's no boasting. That's why Paul is so forceful throughout all of his letters to talk about being justified by grace through faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, we've heard it many times, and I'll say it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not the result from works, so that no one may boast. Romans 6.23, he gets right to the point and says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What we deserve spiritually because of what we bring to the table is death. And rightfully so. Our spiritual self-reliance, our spiritual self-sufficiency, our spiritual ability to save ourselves only ends up in the same place. Death. Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And Jesus in this text is is helping us to see that our continual understanding of that fact, that we bring nothing into salvation, we bring nothing into this equation of salvation, is an attitude that brings blessing into our lives. Blessed are you who understand that you have been saved by grace is another way to say this. Blessed are you who understand that God saved you by his power and his will and his might and not yours. Blessed are you who lean on the grace of God. Your spiritual poverty is rewarded with the treasure of heaven. That's what he's saying. Happiness is not found in trying to make God love you. Happiness is not found in trying to make God accept you. Happiness is found, joy is found in the knowledge that God already accepts you. And already loves you and sent his son to die for you. Happiness is, is resting in the fact that I am 100% saved by God, by his work and not mine. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And knowing that I don't have to earn my way into heaven and knowing that God loved me so much that he made a way for me to have a relationship with him through Christ. I don't know about you, but that brings me peace. That brings me joy. That brings me gives me a happiness that doesn't get taken away. I still experience bumps and bruises, but that's a happiness that I don't lose. Now, let's look at the next verse. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now again, in this text, it's often misunderstood because many people use this as a justification for teachings that Christian, Christianity isn't about joy or happiness or celebration. I think we all have met some of those Christians who don't get too excited or happy about anything. And you go to their church and, man, services are very solemn and somber and serious, right? And they look at this text and they go, yeah, we can't be too happy. It's sinful to get too happy. I think that's where they got that whole, like, you can't dance kind of thing. But that's a whole different sermon for a different day. But, um, you know, there's this idea that we're supposed to be constantly mourning because, you know, blessed are those who mourn. But again, this isn't what Christ is talking about. He's not saying that you need to mourn for mourning's sake, right? He's not saying that you need to be in a perpetual state of sadness, all right? Because think about this. Blessed or happy is the one who is perpetually sad. What? That that doesn't make any sense. It's not where Jesus is going with this. He's talking about a specific type of mourning, a specific type of sorrow. He's talking about a godly kind of sorrow, okay? Okay? Not just being sad all the time just because I'm sad, but a sorrow over things that would that would cause God to be sorrowful, right? And the things that that make God sorrowful or grieve God, well, that would be sin. Right? What Jesus is is talking about is mourning over sin. It's a godly sorrow over sin. It's a sorrow that produces in us repentance. In fact, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, For, I, for if, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, that only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you're, because you grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, whereas... Worldly grief produces death. When you have a relationship with Christ, when you are truly saved, something happens inside of you and you begin to love things that God loves and you begin to hate the things that God hates. And God hates sin. He absolutely abhors sin. Sin is destructive that 's why he hates it. It destroys his creation it 's destructive to us it 's destruct- destructive to relationships. Any of any of us adults who have ever engaged in sin have seen how destructive sin can be in our lives right and so if we 're in a relationship with Christ, we begin to hate our sin. We don't make light of our sin. We don't justify our sin. We don't celebrate our sin. We become sorrowful and we mourn over our sin. Our sin should grieve us the way it grieves God. And when we do sin, as we will in this life, we should be sorrowful for our sin with a godly sorrow that produces repentance. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you who mourn over your sin. Blessed are you who become sorrowful when you sin, because that mourning and sorrow leads to repentance. Blessed are you who mourn over that. And then he says, "You will be comforted. Well, what kind of comfort can be offered to those who mourn over their sin? The greatest comfort that you can get for sin is your forgiveness. That's, that's the comfort we're looking for. Is have our conscience cleared, right? That's the blessing that we need, the blessing that produces lasting joy in our hearts, this amazing forgiveness of our sins and the confidence that Christ is powerful enough and faithful enough to forgive us. John tells us that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that brings great blessing. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, David quotes, I mean uh, I mean Paul quotes David who said Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, extremely happy, and in an enviable position, right? Is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's, the, that's a great comfort to know that we, have, that, that we have and will continue to have the sins that we have in our lives forgiven by Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of that makes me happy because I can't fix it. I still sin. I still grieve over it, just like you. But I have the confidence to not have to carry it around like a broken, you know, piece of equipment that I can walk in happiness and joy. Why? Because I've been forgiven. And that forgiveness of my sin gives me a lasting peace, a lasting happiness, right? And I'm truly blessed and I'm truly comforted with the forgiveness of Christ. Yes, my sin causes me to mourn and I hate it. But I'm comforted by the fact that Christ is faithful to forgive me because he died for me. He died for all my sins, past, present, and future. And that comfort blesses me in a deep way. And so I'm truly blessed in this comfort and I'm blessed that I'm spiritually poor that it's not about me and me having to make God love me. And because of that, mine is the kingdom of heaven. And nothing in the world that, that, that the world can offer me can replace those things. You understand that? No amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of influence, no skills, no hobbies, no relationships, no career, nothing in the world that it could offer me, can replace the joy and the happiness I get from being spiritually poor as I acknowledge my complete dependence upon God and by mourning for my sin and that I have grown to hate since God hates it. I am blessed and happy and joyful in the enviable position for these two heart attitudes that God has given me, the kingdom of heaven. And he's comforted me by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Todd, I don't know if you know who she is, but she um, had a diving accident when she was very young. And she became a a quadriplegic. And uh, she despised God for a little point in in her life. But through that, she became an incredibly um, bold woman of faith. And she has inspired millions of people. She's written a lot of books. She's she's helped lots of people who've gone through terrible things. And the question she's asked all the time is, don't you wish that you could just walk again? She says, absolutely not. It is my wheelchair that's pushed me up against God. I wouldn't trade those blessings for for anything else. There's nothing that the world's going to offer us that's going to be under the joy or the happiness that we have, that we found in Christ Jesus. Yes, our families are going to make us happy. Our kids are going to make us happy. Yes, you know, getting a raise, certainly going to put a smile on your face. I'll admit that, right? Yes, if the Dodgers win the World Series, I'll be a little bit happy. But none of those things, in none of the darkest hours of my life, not the worst kind of events that happen in my life can diminish take away the happiness and the joy that comes because I am spiritually impoverished, incapable of saving myself, and because... I regret the sin that put Christ on the cross, but I am given the kingdom of heaven and I am comforted by the knowledge of my forgiveness and so should you be. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your just overwhelming grace. And so much of our Christian life seems so counterintuitive to us. So much of the world around us seems to be at odds with what we read from the Bible. Blessed are those who are meek. Happy are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, Lord. But as we dig into your word, we see the underlying truth there that happiness ultimately is not found in external things, but in an eternal relationship with you. Happiness is from you, Lord. See, we, like so many other things, we want the gifts, but we forget happiness is not the gift, but the giver. Father, give us a passion for you and your son that all these blessings that would be poured out in our lives. That's ultimately the root of all of it is that we seek you first. Isn't that what you said? Seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and all these other things, the things that we need will be added unto us. Isn't that what... What it's about is seeking you supremely, that you are the greatest thing that we desire. As Pastor John Piper talks about desiring God, that you were most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Father, give us a desire to be satisfied in you. Give us a desire to love you with a reckless abandon. Give us a desire and a happiness that comes from knowing you that transcends all the darknesses. And it outshines all the best days that we could possibly have. That, Father, that you sent your son to die for me. And mine is the kingdom of heaven, not because I deserve it, but because you willed for it to be so. And that I am forgiven by your grace and by your mercy. We love you, Lord. We pray that you'd raise up a people in this place who are passionate about your word. And we'll go out into this community tomorrow and share the hope of your son, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. See you. Listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org and please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.